This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Land, Sea, and Sky. Since 1940, birders have turned to the optics experts at Land, Sea, and Sky to purchase the right binocular for their birding adventures. The shop has hundreds of binoculars and spotting scopes in stock, an industry-leading 90-day return policy, and experienced staff to lend you a helping hand. Drop by their shop in Houston, Texas, or visit them anytime at LandSeaSkyCo.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. And if you are a regular listener, you remember a couple episodes ago when I talked to Dr. Nick Block about bird taxonomy, specifically the AOS Classification Committee proposals, uh, perhaps better known as them splits what we can count. Well, we got to that episode just under the wire because the week after the AOS released those decisions and, well, we, we were wrong about quite a few. Uh, the Mexican duck did not go through. The Scapoli's shearwater did not go through. All of the decisions that would have affected the ABA checklist beyond the sort of expected rearrangements and realignments of families and genera did not go through. I, I'm not so sure what to think about all of this. Before I go on, uh, a couple caveats. First, this is me speaking as Joe Schmoberger, not Nate, the ABA representative. Uh, the ABA as an organization is agnostic on the decisions of the committee that we are allowed not to be as individuals. And two, this is not intended to be an indictment of Nick, who has kindly agreed to be our guide through the wacky world of bird taxonomy. And personally, I have always found his arguments compelling and convincing. But the, the last couple of years have seen a committee extremely hesitant to go where the science is leading them, it feels like. And this seems different from years past. I, I was trying to think back to the last split of a widespread ABA area species, and it was the scrub jay split to California and Woodhouse's scrub jays of 2016. That year, they also split the Pacific Ocean leeches storm petrels, which seems fundamentally similar to the Cory's Scapoli's shearwater scenario this past year. I, I don't get it. Um, I don't, I don't know why these last couple of years have been so taxonomically constipated, as Steve N.G. Howell so memorably put it one time on a Leica blog. Uh, the committee that split Clapper Rail as recently as 2014 does not seem like the same committee that failed to split Willet last year. I don't, I don't claim to know how the personnel on the committee works with term limits and all. I know that these sorts of bodies can change sort of drastically when even as few as one or two people rotate off. It feels like something like that is happening here. Which means, of course, that there can only be one solution. It's so simple, really. I don't know why we didn't we didn't think of it earlier. Nick Block needs to be on the AOS classification committee. Our very own taxonomic rock star. I believe his bona fides have been proven here. The Sultan of Splits, the Lord of Lumps, the mitochondrial commando of the avian status quo. That one might have needed a little work. Of course, that probably means he wouldn't be able to come on the podcast and talk about those things. So, you know, maybe be careful what we wish for. But anyway, hashtag block for AOS. On the show today, Raptor Guru and author of Hawks at a Distance and Hawks at Every Angle, Jerry Ligori is here to talk 
what else? Birds of prey. His diagnosis with ALS and his life as the quintessential hawk watcher. We don't have many celebrities in the birding world, field guide authors and the like, but Jerry is a name that not many birders may know, but perhaps one of the most influential birders in North America. He is featured in the June 2018 issue of Birding Magazine with three commemorative covers featuring raptors he has photographed. It is a bald eagle, American kestrel, and barn owl. They're fantastic. And he will join me after this week's Rare Birds. This is the Rare Bird Focus for the last of June, first part of July 2018. There's nothing mind-blowing in the last few weeks, but there are some good mid-level rarities in the ABA area. Most notable might be a mass duck in Caddo Parish, Louisiana. This widespread but extremely furtive neotropic species is known mostly from Texas and Florida, but it has bred in the ABA area in the past. It almost certainly occurs north of Mexico more often than is noted, but it can be quite hard to find even when you know that one is present. This recent record represents about the fifth for Louisiana and the second in as many years in the ABA area following a bird in Oklahoma last year. 2018 has been very good for fork-tailed flycatchers in the ABA area, though not so many in recent weeks. That changed in Delaware, where a ratty bird was seen near Middleton, not far from the ABA headquarters, though admittedly nowhere in Delaware is really all that far from anywhere else in that state. There's been one first record in the period from British Columbia where a golden-winged warbler was found near the town of Quesnel for a first provincial record. While many species of eastern warbler are regular strays in the western part of the continent, golden-winged is certainly one of the rarest, if not the rarest. Unfortunately for BC birders, it was only seen the one time and then not again. This was a short roundup of the notable rarities in the ABA area for this period. For all your rare bird needs, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. You can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare or follow the rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. Within the community of birding, there are these sort of sub-communities, people whose birding interest is focused on certain groups of birds, and perhaps none are as well-established as hawk watchers. The hawk watching community in North America is close-knit and passionate, and one of its undisputed authorities is Jerry Ligori of Salt Lake City, Utah. Jerry is the author of Hawks at a Distance and Hawks from Every Angle, two of the most influential family-specific field guides out there. Uh, in North America, and the co-author of many more. He is the 2017 recipient of the ABA's Robert Ridgway Award for Publications in Field Ornithology. His articles have appeared many times in ABA's Birding Hit magazine. And uh, the June 2018 issue features his raptor photography with three different commemorative covers. First time we've ever done that. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It is very exciting to have three covers. I've never seen that on any magazine. So that was just a huge compliment. Yeah, they're they're really great images too. I'm I got the I got the barn owl one sent to me. I'm actually kind of partial to that one. That one's my favorite. But they're all they're all beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Your name is synonymous with raptor identification and hawk watching in North America. You've been at it for decades. What was it that first attracted you to these birds and what is it that you still love about them? You know, Of course, I love the way they fly. I mean, especially on migration. I just love to watch migration more than anything. But um, the first spark, per se, was uh, my friend Mark Horowitz pointed out some turkey vultures to me when I was 17, 16 years old. And they just got off the ground in front of us. I guess we spooked them in in a work truck. And they just started to soar and kind of 
sway so effortlessly right in front of us. Just the way they got up and just had no problem. I mean, they, they flapped maybe three or four times and then just started to float above us. And I, I just I just was just mesmerized by their movements. So um, I know turkey vulture isn't a raptor, but it definitely got me hooked on watching birds fly and move. And then, you know, this same friend of mine showed me a red-tailed hawk the next day. He said, oh, I have red-tailed hawks nesting across the street. You got to see those. And I, this red tail came flying out of the field, over the field, and screamed. And I guess it had a nest. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't know better at the time. Yeah. But I was just like, whoa, whoa, wow. Listen yeah. to that. Look at that thing. That is, <laughs> you know, so just, you know, the power and the way they move. That, that was really what got me hooked. And you've had the opportunity to watch them at Hawk Watches all over North America. You still... You still have that sort of amazement with when you watch those birds in those places? I do. Just this spring, I, I have a migration that goes over my house. I live along the Wasatch foothills, and we had a whole bunch of Swainson's hawks going over one day, and I was just staring at them. I didn't say a word for about 10 minutes, and then you know, I had a couple of friends over at the time. I said, this, this might be a good day for some birds moving in. You know, I I just love it. I love it more today than I ever have, actually. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I I still love watching migration. Yeah, they can't beat it. You can't beat the spectacle of it for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you're probably best known for your your books, Hawks at a Distance, and then Hawks from Every Angle. I really I really like these books. I think they're so clever. You know, so many field guides have these beautiful idealized versions of birds, but you know, we all know that's not how you see them in the field. Uh, what motivated you to create these books? this way uh, what did you what need did you see for something like that you know you, you pretty much summed it up when you said that's not the way they see them in the field and other guides that that's exactly what i wanted to do i wanted to show them how they actually look in the field i think i think hawks at a distance is perfect for that and yeah. and it's funny though because it also gets criticized Oh, the pictures are too small. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, like if I get a bad review, the pictures are too small. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Well, yeah, I can accept that because yeah, people yeah. are so you know they want the big, full page, beautiful image, but that's not how you see them in the field. And so I, I just wanted to present them as they normally look, and I did. I tried to show them in all the different positions and all the different lighting situations. And so people, you know, when you look, when you open the page, you say, oh, okay, that's a sharp chin hawk as I'm going to see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not necessarily going to help you identify your close-up photos, although it may, but, you know, it will certainly help you become a better field birder. That's what always has amazed me about people who are really good hawk watchers is their ability to pick these these things out at you know, enormous distance or if a bird kind of flashes by you really quickly. Like, you know, the, uh, have you ever been to the Kiptopeak Hawk Watch in Virginia? You know, I I haven't. Every fall, I had my friend, uh, good friend Brian Sullivan was counting there for a while. And he would always say, come on down to Kiptopeak, yeah. you, know, you, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, I'm counting at Cape May. I, I, yeah. I don't want to take a day off, you know, so... <laughs> It's the spot I've always wanted to go. And then after I gave up counting at Cape May, I went out west 
Uh, so I never, I never went to the Kip Peak Hawkwatch. Yeah, it's a really interesting Hawkwatch. You know, you always think of Hawkwatches as getting like above everything and seeing these birds so far away. But Kip Peak, sometimes the birds like come right over you, over this row of trees, kind of in front of you, and you have to be kind yes. of fast on it. It's, it's, it's different and really interesting in a really uh, different in a really interesting way, I should say. It, it's probably a great site for learning. Yeah, um, definitely. There are certain sites like that where, okay, the bird just just flew by in two seconds how am i going to identify that mm-hmm. but the key is to learn those basic shapes well and the way they move you know the the plumage detail and minutiae is so secondary so if people are counting or watching it kip to peak their whole season they will start to pick up on you know the, the key identification traits such as overall shape okay what was that well it was pointy winged and after a while you okay that was a merlin so you I would stress that if you're at a hawk watch and you get a short glimpse, just try to focus in on the on the shape and the flight style because that's how you're going to identify, you know, 99% of the birds in the field. In the in the interview in Birding Magazine, you you said that one of your pet peeves was people that you try to identify everything that goes by. Do you think that it's useful to sort of let some of those go by if you don't get those impressions? Absolutely. I mean, it's a good thing to try to identify every yeah, bird, right, right, right. you know, but it's impossible. I wish I could say I could identify every single raptor I've ever seen, but hmm. it, it would just be a lie. I mean, it, it's not humanly possible to identify every bird. Some are just too far out. Yeah. Some are just, you know, very short glimpses. So, yeah, you know, sometimes your ego gets in the way. Oh, <laughs> that, that was a sharp shin. And you really didn't know what it was. And I don't do that. I say, boy, that's, uh, you know, as I get older, I realize, you know, I get more honest, let's say. When you're younger, you know, you want to, you know, I wasn't really out to impress people. But, you know what, it, if you if you study raptors hard and long enough, you will impress people. And you'd be surprised what you can identify mm-hmm. with experience. So, yeah. yeah. Leave some unidentified. It's okay. So you've been described as having a a photographic memory, both in terms of being able to remember what you see in great detail and also, you know, remembering specifics about the thousands of bird photos you've taken. Uh, How do you do that? And how do you think it has helped you as a birder? I don't know how I do it. (laughs) It, It's just something that I guess I was born with. It, It helps me a lot, actually. It also has also helped me when people have tried to pull the wool over my eyes, you know, with a photo. <laughs> yeah, that's happened a few times. So it, you know, it keeps keeps me and it keeps people honest. But yeah, just note being able to notice different traits on a on a single bird. Um, you know, there's there was a bird that wintered here in Utah, 2002, and then I hadn't seen it for about 10 years, and about 10 miles away. I saw it again and about 10 years, 10 years later, about 10 miles away. I'm like, is that that bird from 2002, November 2002? <laughs> and, you know, as I took a couple of pictures, I said, yeah, that's the bird. And I, I matched it up and I said, oh, and it, it, that's kind of valuable just in your own individual database in your head or what, you know, just for logging uh, sightings. Um, and, and when you're counting hawks you, and you get to recognize the locals, Things like that. You know, the ghost shoots had a bunch of golden eagles, about three golden eagles that were local and never migrated. But they looked like they were migrating many times. Right, right, right. Oh, no, no, that's the uh, that's our adult. You know, that's got this little thing in the wing. And yeah, you know, but 
I, I don't know how I do it, honestly. <laughs> Just uh, something you're fortunate to have. Yes, and it's fun. <laughs> I think I think hawk watching is one of those sort of aspects of birding that has such enormous potential for really reaching non-birdish just because of the spectacle and, you know, a lot of people have interest in, in raptors generally. I'm sure you've seen that. What is it like to see that spark catch in a, in a person who may not yet be a birder? That is the the best thing about bird watching for me personally is to see somebody's excitement for the first time uh, they catch a big flight or they see a hawk in the hand especially kids uh, you, you can see it in their face for me now it's more about the people and paying it forward so yeah that is the most rewarding part about birding and hawks are definitely the group that this happens often with you know i mean <laughs> kids are fascinated by predators. You mean that bird can see miles away? They could see a mouse on the ground? I'm like, yeah, they, they can. To see a, a, like a kettle or a, or a group of hawks up in the air, that really excites kids and, and, and older people as well, people just starting out. But yeah, that's the most rewarding thing about being a birder is when somebody tells me, you know, you turned me on 25 years ago, to, you know, I, I thank you so much. I'm like, I, you're welcome. But, you know, really, it's the birds that turn them on. I was just helping a just little. channel, yeah. <laughs> you know, hawk watching is almost like a cult. It is, like you said in your introduction, like it's it's a form of birding outside of just your normal birding. It really is. Uh, you were you were heavily involved in the creation of the, the Hawk Watch International Raptor Identification app, uh, which is really unique in that it takes advantage of that technology in ways that other guides don't. I think that's something that field guide publishers haven't quite nailed yet. You know, apps are often just the guide on the phone, which is, you know, useful, but not not really a game-changing application of that technology. But the Hawkwatch app uses these videos to show the way the birds move in the air, which is such a great thing, especially for raptors. Um, is that something that you really push to include? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the videos, I guess they're the key to the app, and, and they're also the key to identification. I mean, if I can describe to you how a sharp shin hawk flaps its wings or flies in a windy day and you could understand what i'm saying but to see it to watch it in the video is a thousand times more powerful i mean and the voiceovers you know they're telling you what to look at while you're watching it when brian and i brian sullivan uh had this idea to do an app we were taking video at the time but we weren't too serious about it but we thought the video is going to be the key to the app. Let's get video for all 34 North American species, including vultures and condor. And let's just do it right. It took us about five years to get all the video. We traveled around the country. Brian went to Belize for hook-billed kite. <laughs> but it was worth it. I mean, we've gotten a lot of good feedback on the app. Uh, people make fun of my voiceovers, friends, of course. <laughs> I think they're good voiceovers. Most people like them, but... Yeah, the video is just, it stands alone, for sure. And I appreciate you bringing that up. I've often sort of knocked some of these field guide apps that are out there because, as I said, a lot of times it's just the, the field guide on the on the phone. And now this yeah. technology has so much potential to be really useful for bird Lots identification, to get people out and enjoying birds. And kind of, one of the things that I think is really useful for learning birds is sort of, building your own language to describe things and you know mm -hmm. watching a video you can 
you can build your own language. You can describe things in your own way that's going to resonate with you. And it's it's just so useful. <laughs> right. And and Cornell Lab of Ornithology is the other partner on the app. Mm-hmm. And what they can do is take this content and keep it relevant. You know, they yeah. have the capability of making sure, you know, the videos or the app content will never go out of style, per se. You know what I'm saying? So I will say other apps serve their purpose. And it's incredibly yeah. difficult to get clean footage of moving birds. So <laughs> yeah. it's it's not that easy. I mean, it's, you know, oh my gosh, there's dust on the sensor. That, that video was perfect, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. or, oh, I, I jerked the tripod a little bit. I got to re- delete that. So I wouldn't be surprised if you saw lots of video in future apps, but I'd also be surprised if there was a comprehensive video app like that because it takes a lot of money and a lot of time to get the footage. Yeah. So Yeah. And and a lot of it takes a lot of data too. It takes up a lot of room on your device. And as yes. you know, we kind of reach that critical mass where data becomes almost inconsequential. It seems like we're getting there every year. Mm-hmm. That's that sort of stuff is gonna be more useful, I think, too. Right. You were diagnosed with the neurodegenerative disease ALS in 2016. How has that affected the way that you approach birding? I, I obviously I don't go out bird watching as much. Um, most most of my bird watching is uh, sitting on my front deck that I have a, a nice view from, and just mm-hmm. listening to the birds around the yard and watching birds fly overhead. I can't hold binoculars any longer mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to stand up um so it's limited it but i will say if there is a silver lining it's helped my skills <laughs> i don't <laughs> use binoculars any any longer nice, I, yeah. I just sit out there naked eye which you know i've done that before too when people have binoculars and they can't fine birds and yeah they have this old little mini compact and i've lent people my binoculars at hawk watches and said here try these you know and just for them to have the experience and i just watch naked eye all day and and you know so it helps your skills for sure to do that to leave the binoculars at home but um yeah it's it's limited it greatly it's it's very difficult to watch birds um you know like you said it's it's a nerve disease that affects your muscles and it, it's affecting my back and my neck. So looking straight up into the sky is right. uh, it's painful, but, you know, I still do it. I'll probably go out today, probably go outside today and watch birds for a little time, a little while. That's great. So, you know, you had a memorable experience going back to go shoot Hawkwatch last last year. You went up by helicopter. <laughs> yeah. So I hadn't been there in a couple of years. You know, my diagnosis was 2016, but it was 2014 that my symptoms started. Mm-hmm. So by 2016, I wasn't able to hike up there and get up there at all. So last fall, last September, a couple of friends, Jesse Watson and Neil Paprocki from Hawkwatch, they contacted the Gleason Foundation for ALS and got a grant to pay for a helicopter to fly me up there, which is which was wonderful. I was really surprised and happy to take him up on the offer. I, I hate flying. I was terrified. <laughs> That's ironic that you're a hawk watcher. <laughs> I, I know. I love birds and I can't. You know what? I would like to fly on my own wings. There you go. There under you go. my own control. More control. But, yeah. 
<laughs> so yeah, they flew me up there. It was it was it was exciting. You know, you're down at the bottom of the canyon, and the helicopter picked me up at the bottom with my wife Sherry and Jesse, and flew us up. And it only took a couple of minutes to get to the top of the ridge, but you know, you had that bird's eye view like a hawk would over my favorite ridge. So I, I was I wasn't nervous at all once we got up got up in the air. It's like I'm I'm going to get to see this ridge the way the hawks see the ridge. I spent yeah. the day up there. We had a great dark morph broadwing that flew over. It was just a wonderful day. It was just nice to be up there again. I, you know, I was very, very grateful that they did that for me. I've seen you pop up from time to time on the ABA's What's This Bird ID group. Uh, do mm-hmm. you find satisfaction in remaining a part of the birding community despite, you know, not being able to get out in the field as much? Very much, yes. I, I still enjoy helping people, especially with their IDs. Um, I actually did get off this all the bird sites recently. Just the time constraint. It's hard to it's hard to answer all the follow up questions and. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear that. <laughs> yeah, my fingers aren't working very well at all. So, but yeah, I do I do I do love to interact online, um, and I think people like it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think they do. I mean, you know, oh my yeah, god, yeah. I was looking through this book and I realized the author answered the question. That's <laughs> wonderful. You know, I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm just a, a regular schmo like everybody else. You know. Just happen to have my name on some covers, but it's it's funny. It's it's nice to get that reaction. Yeah. Uh, what do you see in the future for raptors and and hawk watching specifically? Um, I like that there's a lot of young raptor watchers out there. Well, hawk watching will always be there, but I hope you need the young people to be interested. And there are there are a lot of young people out there, and they're all savvy with the technology and uh, I think there's going to be a lot more video down the road and mm-hmm. and learning tools you know people are still discovering new new sites to watch birds um, so I, I, th- I think it looks I think the future of hawk watching looks great I just hope they still understand that the basics and just of identification and watching are always, critical you know they can make binoculars that are 20 power and well they do but you're still going to need a wide field of view and something you can hold steady and you know Mm -hmm. some things will never go out of style you know you're still going to have to learn how they move so you know i i just hope there's people out there that are and i know there are studying like i studied them and there'll be new books and new experts and i think it's wonderful Jerry Ligori is the author of Hawks at a Distance and Hawks from Every Angle. His photography is featured in the June 2018 issue of Birding Magazine. There are three covers. You can get all three with a $75 donation to the ABA's Nesting Season Appeal. Thanks, Jerry, for providing all your all your photography for that stuff. And, and thanks so much for talking to me. Oh, yeah. Was, I appreciate you having me on and happy to do it anytime. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. We are proud of the work we do for the birding community, especially for young birders, and we are currently coming down to the wire in our nesting season appeal, our annual fundraiser for the Young Birder Programs. Donate $75 and you will receive all three commemorative covers of the June 2018 issue of Birding, featuring the work of Jerry Ligori. Get more information at aba.org gift. You can also join the ABA, if you like, at aba.org join. 
Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who describes the flight of a sharp-shinned hawk as zesty, with an intense citrus nose and a mouth-watering freshness driven by high acidity. Technical production is by John Lowry, who describes the shape of a peregrine falcon as characteristically complex and condensed, a tour de force of craft and technique, but one that is unambiguously in the service of a sober, sincere, profoundly moral story. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Meese, who note that the Swainson's Hawk, to them, looks impeccably chic. The sleek, simple design can anchor the living room of any modern aesthetic, from traditional industrial to mid-century modern. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA Northern Goshawks. Could be a tough ID, but we've always thought they looked as good as they are big. Under scoops of our own secret sauce are two lean patties of 100% beef. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.